You're listening to The Right Process, a podcast in which one writer tells the story of creating one work from concept to completion. I'm your host, Charlie Jensen. The Right Process is brought to you by the Writer's Program at UCLA Extension, helping you reach your writing goals one page at a time. Enroll now at uclaextension.edu. Hi, I'm Lisa Jacobs, and I wrote Catalina. It's my debut novel, out now from MCD FSG Originals. Lisa Jacobs holds an MFA from the University of California, Riverside, and her essays and short fiction have appeared in The Rumpus, Los Angeles Review of Books, Chicago Review of Books, Literary Hub, The Millions, and others. In this episode, Lisa talks about her debut novel, Catalina. Catalina follows Elsa Fisher, who has just been fired from MoMA on the heels of an affair with her married boss, as she retreats to Los Angeles to blow her severance package on whatever it takes to numb the pain. Her abandoned crew of college friends and her ex-husband receive her with open arms, and, thinking she's on vacation, plan to celebrate their reunion on a booze-soaked sailing trip to Catalina Island. But Elsa doesn't want to celebrate. She's lost and angry, and her determined unraveling and recklessness expose painful memories and dark desires, putting everyone in the group at risk. The concept for Catalina came from a couple different places. I started working at the Getty Research Institute uh, right out of UCLA. I thought I was going to stay there until I retired, actually. I was just in love with the people and the art, and I thought, this is it for me. But then... About five years into it, I realized, oh, it's just like any other job. (laughs) No offense to the Getty, but, you know, there was layoffs. There were just the typical things that happen at any job. So I I was pretty disillusioned. This was my late 20s. And I left to write full time. And I wanted this book, Elsa, who's the main character in Catalina, to deal with that sort of disillusionment, um, which she, right out of the gate, is dealing with having been fired from the Museum of Modern Art in New York. So there is that parallel. (laughs) And the other sort of inspiration for it is I really wanted to write an updated sort of retelling of Jean Reese's book, um, Good Morning Midnight, which was written in 1939, or it was published in 1939. Um, And in that book, Sasha Jensen, and she returns to Paris sort of on a bender, just like Elsa, uh, and sort of spirals and just self-destructive behavior through the whole book. And and it doesn't end in a very happy place. But I, I wanted to believe that a woman in 2017, or when I started writing this, which was five years ago, um, could mess up and come out all right, or at least have some sort of redeeming, some sort of moment of redemption. And it was really depressing to realize that that's not the case. So that was, that was one of, those were the two main inspirations. Another thing that happened at the Getty that made me realize I wanted to leave was I had started to rehouse Man Ray's Hollywood album. So Man Ray came to Hollywood during World War II, and he was here for about a decade. You, so you followed him from when he first arrived in Hollywood, and he was like just bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and just thought, this is going to be my new start. I'm going to be a painter because he actually hated photography. I remember coming across one letter he wrote to his sister saying, I hate photography. I'm only doing it for the money. And I was blown away because that was what I had known him for and what most people know when you hear Man Ray, you think of his photography. Um, And so during his 10 years here, he really tried to make it as a painter and failed spectacularly. (laughs) Um, So I really realized that what you do for 
money, what you do for work is what you're known for. And that haunted me for a couple of years after that until I left the Getty because I thought, no, if I'm going to, I was trying to, I, that was when I was going to UCLA Extension writing courses and trying to do it part-time on the side. And I realized, no, if I really want to be a writer, if I really want to publish a book, I'm going to have to dedicate my entire life to that and sacrifice a lot, which is what I did. So how I started with the book is I sat down after I left the Getty. I, I sat down at my desk, and her voice sort of just tumbled out of me, and she was so angry and disillusioned and sort of just fed up with everybody around her. And I thought, why? Why are you like this? Why are you so mad? So I just sort of followed that voice. And at first I thought it was going to be a novella. And once I decided to go back to school for my master's degree at UCR Palm Desert, I showed it to a couple people there. Actually, I wasn't going to show it to anybody. I thought this was like my my angry diary, sort of. <laughs> not to say it's non it's it's nonfiction. It's not, but I just thought, oh, I just had to get this out of me. I had to get this character out of me because it had been built up over five years of working at the Getty. Um, uh, but as soon as I started at the UCR Palm Desert program, I showed it to Mary Otis, and I thought, if she's if she tells me this, there's nothing here. I'm just going to shelve it. And she said, just keep going. Just uh, see why, why is she like this. So I had sort of been given permission, I guess, to explore her a little bit more. And the more uh, teachers I worked with there, I worked with Mark Haskell-Smith and Todd Goldberg, um, they were just really supportive and um, respectful of the work, um, which sort of gave me the confidence to flesh it out more and more and more until all of a sudden it was a novel. So the first draft was a novella, um, and I wrote it really quickly, probably in a month or so, and it was about 50 pages. And I, and I thought, maybe I'll try to get this published somewhere. I was really into the indie scene. I was running a zine at the time. Um, so I thought that, that could be a nice avenue. Maybe I could structure it in different zines and, and sort of do something fun like that, make it more visual. And then when I started the UCR program and my focus for the program was going to be this book, I slowly started, I guess, fleshing it out um, piece by piece. And that took me, I mean, the entire program, so two years writing it over and over again. But, but it wasn't like I would, I would write one whole draft. I was really like creating more scenes to get to know the character and not just Elsa but all, all the characters in it um, she's revisiting old groups of friend, an old group of friends that include her ex-husband an old best friend and her ex-husband's uh, new girlfriend so I had to know all of them equally as well and what they mean to Elsa also so it, it became like a sort of psychological exercise it's because this is a voice-driven novel, and became various a sort of psychological study of this female character, who I guess traditionally is the femme fatale, um, and that was one of the things I wanted to do too with this character. Was I always sort of pitied Lady Brett Ashley in um, *The Sun Also Rises* because Jake is just constantly fetishizing her and putting her on a on a stool pedestal. So I wanted to know what it would be like to actually be um, this character, what the world looks like to her. Because of that. Oftentimes, I would get so sucked into her voice and in her head, my poor husband would come home, and I'd be like, so I'd have bought a pack of cigarettes, and I'd have made myself a drink and gotten really involved. So there was, there was a lot of process to it. Both my editor and my agent like to say I method, method right, because I also did a lot of trips to Catalina. I, I wanted, Catalina was really important to have that be in the book and where it takes place, because it is sort of this small 
version of Los Angeles itself. It has two sides to it. Uh, there's Avalon, which is the touristy sort of fake Mediterranean paradise place. And then there's Two Harbors, which is the other side of the island, which has no golf carts, one bar, one restaurant, and um, Catalina Island foxes come down and, and at night and like leave footprints on your sleeping bag and stuff. And bison will come down from the hills too, and you can see bald eagles. And it's pretty wild. And it, I wanted that sort of duality in the book because in Los Angeles you have Hollywood, right? But then you also have the Santa Monica Mountains and the Los Angeles National Forest. And in the book, you have these characters who are all pretending to be one way, but are actually something else. Uh, what I wanted to accomplish with this novel was, I think, I guess two things. One, I wanted to do it for myself because I had put so much on the line. So I really felt the pressure on myself that I had sacrificed this great job at the Getty and switched paths completely. You know, my, my husband was very supportive, so I felt like I needed to prove myself there too. And also with my program, I really felt everyone there thought the manuscript was really good. So I really wanted to prove that they had bet on the right horse. The other reason why it was important for me to write this book was it was I wanted to do the characters justice. I wanted to do their stories justice also. And what I was writing was my truth, and I wanted to do it in the best of my ability possible. So the great thing about the UCR PD program is that they have your graduating quarter. They have an editor and an agent read your work. And so I wanted to have that agent choose me, of course. I think everybody wants that. Uh, but before we got there, a lot of some of the professors there were like, well, you should talk to this agent and this agent. So I started submitting probably well before my last quarter, which was such a painful thing to do because you're just continually either getting rejected or not hearing anything. So you start to feel very lonely and like you're screaming into a void. <laughs> A lot of times I would think my email wasn't working and I would send myself email or my husband would know that I, I was doing that. So he'd send me an email and be like, your email's working. <laughs> so that was very frustrating. And uh, eventually I, I ended up with Dara um, right after Dara Hyde, which she's with Hill Nadell. And it's funny because I was working at the last bookstore at the time and she and I had a working relationship there where a lot of, a lot of her clients would come to the bookstore and I would facilitate events for them. Uh, so I thought I shouldn't submit. This is this is how such a noob I was. I, I thought because we had this working relationship, I shouldn't submit my book to her. Even though all this is probably the best advice I can give anybody is is that all agents can compartmentalize very well. They have no problem reading your work if you have some other professional relationship with them and still rejecting you. But luckily, Dara did not reject me. <laughs> she liked the book and wanted to work with me. Um, and at that point, the ending just needed to be um, reworked um, until it was ready to be sent out. She understood from the get-go who Elsa was psychologically, what, what the ending needed to be to feel both um, satisfying for the reader, but also the right ending for Elsa, which was a huge learning experience for me. I came from a background that was not the publishing world. The publishing world is very slow. It's kind of a dinosaur industry in sort of a very sweet, like, you know, grandparent type of way where nothing's changed really in the last 150 years. Um, so uh, everything takes time. And I was dead set on getting the book sold and 
Um, I think I, I was already talking to publishers and was like, but this person's interested. Can't we just give them the book? And she kept saying, no, the book's not ready. The book's not ready. And I had to realize that she knew best and that she had a vision for the book um, and not just not like a vision different from me. And this was another thing that was really important is that you need to surround yourself with people who understand the book as well as you do and understand the characters. They're not just looking for a check. They're not just looking to offload it somewhere. Um, they get your vision also. Um, I actually, somebody, I think this my program, they kept telling me that, and I was like, there's no way anyone could possibly get my book. But somebody had told me, I think it was David Eulin there, he said, you need to find an agent who is sort of like your significant other. And then you need to find an editor who is also like your significant other. And I thought, how are, what are the chances of you finding that twice, let alone once? So, but it, it's very true. Um, they, and they have to understand your book and they have to understand the characters and sort of be passionate about it, which is what I guess all those rejections were. That's not really rejecting the work. It's just they didn't feel as passionate about the book as Dara does or did or still does. Um, so once it was, it probably took a year of back and forth with Dara. By back and forth, I mean we did probably two rounds, but there was a lot of time in between because she has other clients and I had to, you know, um, I was writing other essays at the time too to try to get my publishing um, credentials looking nicer. And then we went to submission. And that was crazy because for about 12 months, you're just either doing notes for a couple weeks and then you turn them in and then you're just waiting. So a lot of that one year was waiting. And then you go into submission and it happens very fast. You're just, I guess, she sent it out to 10 people. Um, a couple people said uh, they passed, a couple publishers. Um, then some editors were, other in were interested at a couple different publishing houses. So um, because there was a couple uh, publishing houses that were interested, um, Daphne, who's now my editor at MCDFSG, uh, wanted didn't want it to go to bidding so she did a preempt which is when they just give you a lump sum of money and they say if you just take it off the table right now we'll you know like we'll give you this money and a second book deal which is what I got with them and that was blew my mind I mean I was probably in submission for three weeks I mean, it aged me considerably those three weeks <laughs> I think I got my first gray hairs that week um those couple weeks and then all of a sudden it was over and I had a two book deal with FSG. So it was pretty wild. It was wild to just be like waiting and wanting something for years and years and years. And then all of a sudden it's like sitting here on the desk in front of me. <laughs> it's very bizarre. So I, as, I, as I said, I really didn't think I would find an editor that was as you know a, a much of a champion for the book as Dara was and, and Daphne was even more so. Um, right out of the gate, we had a couple phone calls before she bought the book, and she was in love with Elsa. She told me this great story about how Dara had sent her the manuscript, and she was supposed to go out to dinner with her husband, and she thought, I'll just open this up real quick and read the first couple sentences. And then, like, 45 minutes later, her husband came in and said, are we still going to dinner? And she was like, oh, my God, where am I? <laughs> Which is great. You know, that's, that's so fantastic. Um, and she was very invested in Elsa and um, all the characters and uh, we worked on the book for another year back and forth. I think we probably did five rounds of more edits really getting into the nitty-gritty 
which was fun. It was all a learning process with that, too. And then after that, it goes to proofreaders. I really never thought the book was going to be done at one point. I was like, how many more proofreaders are we going to have? How many more copy editors? So it was, it was, it was fun. What I discovered from day one to now um, was I was writing my truth, and I didn't know if other people would relate to that or not. And in finding you know, an, an agent, Dara, who's a woman, and then also my editor, who's a woman, but also I worked with you know, two, two guys at UCRPD, um, is that these themes are universal. And if you write as truthful as possibly, you somehow stumble into writing for everybody which is very comforting um, because you don't feel, I think maybe that's why we all write anyways, you don't want to feel so alone. So by doing, sort of feeling like you've gotten to this point where everybody, um, people understand or feel, I don't know, I guess you just don't feel so alone. It's nice. Um, Unless you get one star and then you feel terrible. It's just past breakfast, so I order up a pitcher of Bloody Marys and a bagel. I dash off a text to mother. I've landed safely. Sorry I couldn't stay longer. The phone is a slick new thing. Touch screen with buttons too small for my fingers, but still they make a satisfying click-click. Before I left New York, I bought a Gucci case for it. Alligator skin, because it was gaudy and expensive and because I liked the idea of a decorative predator. I turn the ringer off and slip the phone into one of the dresser drawers. The Miramar is a Bougainvillea and Jasmine Hotel. Cobblestone circular drive, name and cursive on a black iron gate. Golden California light spilling everywhere. My room faces the pier, and when I'm out on the balcony, it's like walking on the giant banyan and jumble of palm trees below. All the cocktails here are named after celebrities. The Capote is a mess of bourbon and mint. The Marilyn has gin and a cherry. The Bloody Mary is the only one named for what it is, and after the last two days, it's exactly what I need. I had gone to Bakersfield because New York had turned on me. It felt treacherous. Everywhere, reminders of him. I wanted somewhere I would feel safe, somewhere familiar. Instead, almost as soon as I got off the plane, I remembered why I left Bakersfield in the first place. Mother, with her thin lipstick smile. How she reached out for my shoulder but took my bag instead. How she never asked how I was feeling, only said how thin I was, how great my skin looked. By the time she invited my older brothers over for Sunday dinner, something that never happened when I was around, but apparently became a tradition once they bought houses in the area, I was already looking up flights to Los Angeles. They showed up with their perky, two-of-a-kind wives and their darling, demonic children. At first, they feigned surprise at seeing me, but then one did his best Donald Trump. You're fired, he said, pushing his thinning hair to one side and pointing at me, his wife pinching him, saying, don't listen to him, hon, it's happening everywhere while her boys tugged at her jeans, chanting, Mom, Mom, Mom. In the kitchen, Mother wasn't just holding down the button on the blender. She was pulsing it, the ice for her margaritas crunch-crunching, between the kids chanting, Mom, Mom. I took the first flight out this morning. Then it was just a short cab ride to Santa Monica. I try not to imagine the face Mother will make when she realizes I've left. I hang my dresses and blouses and slacks, calling up for more hangers. I arrange my shoes in the closet as if I am moving in. I read over the dry cleaning services and note that they will press your socks free of charge. The bed is wide, a California king, with a down comforter that puffs up around me like a hug, saying, just wait, just wait. I try not to think of how few options I have left, how being laid off feels like an end that rings on and on, how Eric did not ask me to stay, how in that last moment in his office, he did not stand up and say anything, just sat there, 
hand beside mine, close but not touching, until the human resources woman coughed politely and he moved it away. But let's not think of that. I look up at the ceiling where a fan made to look like palm fronds turns in quiet arcs. Just beyond the eggshell walls is a bustling little beach city, my college town. Those days seem so long ago. Charlie and Jared are living in Santa Monica now, Southern California homeowners, for God's sake. Their wedding, more than six years ago, was the last time we were all together. Charlie, lovely in white lace, already making excuses for Jared with his sweaty upper lip, still hungover from his bachelor party. At the reception, a DJ announced Mr. and Mrs. Jared Brownstone to a cheering room, and Robbie stood, whistling and clapping. Jared raised his arms above his head, a victorious gladiator, and the crowd ate it up, their cheering thunderous. Someone stood on a chair and shouted into a megaphone. Others used the toy hand clappers with the bride's and groom's names written in white paint. I took a Xanax with champagne, telling myself to be quiet, to ignore that nervous flutter, silence that inner alarm, just be content. Drink and be content. This can be enough for you, too. You are married to your own college sweetheart. It has not even been a year. Give it time. Just wait. Charlie beaming, beaming as she looked at me from across the room. A look of cul-de-sac contentment, a future filled with barbecues, pool parties, and playdates. This is enough for her, I thought. It is enough for them all. And then there was Robbie, frowning at me because I asked the waiter for another glass of champagne. Because lately I'd been taking Xanax like Tic Tacs. But Robbie, I thought, don't you want a happy little wife? I started looking for jobs in New York the next day. Our little clique has kept in touch since then, mostly online. I know all about Jared's promotions, Charlie's new job at the elementary school, how they began renovations on their house, and how a few months ago, when they were in New York, we somehow did not find the time to see each other. And Robbie, too, his new job working for Jared and dating a woman who takes a lot of selfies, all outdoors, usually summiting some peak. Should I call them? I'm not ready to hear Robbie's voice, still tense and hurt, waiting to be let back in. Charlie? She will definitely want to go shopping. And we will get frappuccinos with skim milk and try on dresses and talk about whatever argument she and Jared are currently in the middle of. God, how exhausting to be back. I can almost feel my old self, that girl who loved art, museums especially, who dreamed of a career far from here. Poor girl. Joke's on you. You're back. Your old life just waiting for you like a second skin. When I called Charlie from, ba from Bakersfield, she whooped. Elsa's finally coming home. She chattered on about planning a trip for us. Robbie wanted to see a jazz festival happening on Catalina Island. A friend of Jared's had a sailboat. It'll be perfect, she said. It'll be just like old times. And that second skin goes zip. In eighth grade, Charlie's parents divorced and her mother took her to Southern California, to Simi Valley. We reconnected at UCLA years later. We fell back into it easily, discovering that whatever made our childhood friendship necessary was still there. Then sometime after my divorce with Robbie, as she settled into a life that consisted mostly of pleasing Jared, and I was occupied with a new job, we let our friendship lag. It was easy to do. I urged it along, letting weeks go by before returning phone calls or answering emails, intentionally keeping my New York life separate, private. But Charlie is loyal to a fault, like a good soldier or a dog. This is when being sober is the worst. I called to check on my room service order, asking them to bring extra pillows and Advil too. The room service boy lingers, saying he thinks redheads are pretty. He's young and breakable, and it would feel so goddamn good to break something. He's cute with a cleft in his chin, but I'm way too tired to do anything about it. I shower with my drink and take one of Mother's Vicodins. Let it begin, I think, rolling myself 
into one of the hotel bathrobes, the fabric soft and vibrantly white, wonderfully impersonal. Let it begin. The Right Process is produced by me, Charlie Jensen, at the UCLA Extension Studio. Audio support and editing were provided by Jamie Moss, Eileen Keegan, and Hannah Sutherland. For more information on the Writers Program, visit writers.uclaextension.edu.